Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specializes in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing, and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, Trouble in Paradise. The New York Times' Ben Dooley joins me to discuss his recent reporting trip to the tropical island of Ishigaki. Ben Dooley, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a story that you recently reported from the island of Ishigaki. Some listeners might have heard of Ishigaki, others might have been to Ishigaki, but there'll be a lot of people out there who won't have the foggiest idea of where it is we're talking about. So, to begin with, could you paint a picture for me of the island of Ishigaki? Sure. It's about a three hour flight from Tokyo, and、uh, you get off the plane and you kind of appear in a totally different world. Some would describe it as an island paradise. If you were to、uh, search through our Archives,、uh, you'd see a lot of travel articles describing you know, beautiful coral reefs, aquamarine oceans. It's、uh, famous for pineapples, sugarcane, mangoes.、Um, so it's, it's quite a different, different place than、uh, kind of what you would traditionally think of as Japan. Certainly. Last time I went to Ishigaki, I remember I was just walking along to a beach somewhere, and an old lady came up to me and said, Oh, would you like a pineapple? And I said, Sure, I'd love to buy a pineapple off you,、um, but I don't have a knife. And she said, Oh, don't worry, they're so ripe that if you just twist the top off and pull them open, you can eat them no problem. And it was by far the best pineapple I've ever had. Yeah, we actually、uh, I had the best pineapple ice cream I've ever had in my life. And I never even really thought to eat pineapple ice cream, but、um, just fantastic at two servings. Nice, yeah. The island's also famous for its beaches. And as you mentioned, the water is this unbelievable color. I went diving last time I was there to try and see some manta rays. And I remember the water being a blue that seemed almost fake, like someone had poured a large amount of blue food coloring into the water. It was so bright and vivid. Yeah, I have friends who go there for snorkeling, kiteboarding.、Um, it's, it's quite a popular vacation destination. If you can't go to Hawaii, you can go to Ishigaki. So, what took you there, you know, aside from the beaches, the aquamarine water and the pineapple ice cream? <laughs>、um, I went there because it's close to Taiwan. And I used to report in China and I have a lot of interest in Japan's relations with China. And over the last year, there's been a really prominent change in the way Japan has talked about China、hmm. and particularly Taiwan. 
So I wanted to go and see what that relationship looked like on kind of the, the front lines. And Ishigaki was interesting to me because several years ago, there was a decision made to put some missile launchers on Ishigaki. And that's become a huge issue of concern uh, for the people who live there. And one of the reasons why is that they're afraid that with tensions rising now between China and the U.S., Japan could potentially become pulled into a military confrontation over mm. Taiwan. And if that were to happen, those missiles would be a potential target for Chinese forces. Hmm. You said Ishigaki was a three-hour flight southwest of Tokyo, but just how close is it to the island of Taiwan then? So it's about 300 kilometers to Taiwan. Actually, Taiwan and Ishigaki have, over the years, had quite a close relationship so um, it's not the case anymore, but uh, previously people who lived there could take a ferry to Taiwan and often would to do uh, shopping to, I don't know, take care of various errands. Mm. Um, and you had a lot of people from Taiwan moving to Ishigaki and uh, some of the people he spoke to, for example, were descended from Taiwanese immigrants. Interesting. I didn't know the islands were so closely linked, but... I guess it makes sense given their proximity. And this missile defense system that's being built, is it the only example of increased militarization of the area? The installation is part of a broader plan to protect the uh, kind of remote islands in Japan's southwest. And it's not just in Okinawa, it's also in Kagoshima. So uh, Amami Oshima, for example, another island in Kagoshima, is also getting a military installation. And there's been some concern because Ishigaki is also close to the Senkaku Islands, mm. um, which are islands that are administered by Japan, but claimed by China. In Chinese, they're called the Diaoyu. Right. The Senkakus are a small cluster of uninhabited islands that are about 170 kilometers due north-northwest of Ishigaki, over which both Japan and China claim sovereignty. Correct. Ishigaki hosts uh, Japan's largest Coast Guard um, base right now. And uh, the Coast Guard is frequently going out to Senkaku, where they're engaging with Chinese uh, Coast Guard vessels and uh, fishermen and sort of chasing them away from the islands. It's been happening for a while. So there's this broader concern about China uh, and its plans for what's considered Japanese territory, what the Japanese consider Japanese territory. Now, this is getting us a little bit more complicated, but the Chinese Navy, if it wants to go into the, the broader Pacific Ocean, it needs to sail through Japan, basically. This area kind of known as the first island chain, which runs from Japan all the way down to, I guess, uh, the Philippines. So Japan has wanted to, or the U.S. has also been pressuring it, I guess, for a while to improve its defenses in this region so that if push came to shove, it could uh, deny China access to the Pacific Ocean. You mentioned there that Japan's view on China has changed due to rising tensions over the Senkakus. But more broadly, could you describe how the two countries' relationship has developed over the past few decades? China and Japan, I mean, it's complicated, right? Right. I, I realise it's a big question for a 30-minute podcast uh, trying to unpack the entirety of Japan-China relationships. <laughs> no, it's okay. You know, just, just to give uh, the short version, obviously Japan colonised a large part of China during the Second World War. There still a fair amount of resentment around that. So you can't say that relations have been warm at any point in the last 
70 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. But having said that, Japan in the 1970s, uh, 72, recognized uh, the People's Republic of China officially and uh, provided them with a lot of financial aid uh, as China's economy has become stronger. It's become a really important market for Japan. Japanese businesses are heavily invested in China, and um, it's Japan's largest export market. So relations were pretty good until there was a real schism in relations uh, around 2012 uh, over the Senkaku's issue uh, when Japan nationalized those islands. And basically, for years after that, the Abe administration was bent on trying to improve relations with China. And through the end, really, until the time Abe stepped down, one of his primary goals diplomatically was to get Xi Jinping to make an official visit to Japan. And he was due to, right? But it was cancelled in the early days of the pandemic. That's right. But over the last year, things have changed dramatically. That's partly because of the pandemic and the concerns about uh, how China handled the initial phases of the pandemic. It's partly because of what's happening in China's far west in Xinjiang, where the Chinese government has been uh, persecuting primarily the Uyghurs, but other ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. And it's also because of what's happened in Hong Kong, where China has basically crushed Hong Kong democracy. And I think most people would say uh, violated its promise to allow Hong Kong to have its own effectively independent system of governance. In light of all of that, I think Japan has really reevaluated its relationship with China. Instead of having this kind of approach where, you know, it was somewhat wary of China, but basically saw it as an important country that it needed to maintain friendly relations with, it's now sort of thinking, well, maybe that's not as important as it once was. Mm. And maybe we need to have a little more distance from China. And is this concern over China shared right across Japan's political spectrum, or is this largely a preoccupation of the more nationalistic parties? I think if you were to go back, say, five, six years ago, you would have seen a lot of people in Japan uh, were reluctant to criticize China directly. Uh, and the big exception to that was kind of uh, Japan's right and ultra-right, uh, people who were much more conservative. Liberals, progressives, and even kind of the more middle-of-the-road uh, politicians really were not likely to say anything. But now there's consensus really across the political spectrum. I mean, if you were to ask the Japan Communist Party, even the Komeito um, who are quite dovish, uh, pretty much everyone is worried about China and agrees that China's headed in a direction that is, is concerning for Japan. They all have different ideas about what to do about that. Um, you know, the Japan Communist Party, for example, thinks that any issues Japan has with China should be resolved through diplomacy, uh, whereas if you were to talk to people on the, the right and the LDP, uh, obviously they are more interested in investing in defense and deterrence against China. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when we're talking about this new missile defense system on Ishigaki, the other important relationship to really understand is Japan's relationship with Taiwan. So how has that changed over the past few decades? And maybe to contextualize your answer, a good starting point is to ask, what is China's stance towards Taiwan? China considers Taiwan a part of its territory, and it's put all sorts of pressure on Taiwan to uh, sort of prevent it from declaring independence. And 
Japan, like most other countries in the world now, doesn't recognize Taiwan as an independent nation or even as a country. But it still has uh, de facto relations with Taiwan, as do many other nations. So Taiwan was a Japanese colony for 50 years. And if you compare it to, say, South Korea or China or other countries that uh, were colonized by Japan uh, during the war, people in Taiwan actually really like Japan. It has a, quite a warm relationship with Japan, whereas South Koreans, for example, typically don't necessarily like Japan. If you ask the average person in Taiwan what they think about Japan, you'll almost always get a positive response. And Japan also likes Taiwan. Uh, so as Taiwan has been having more and more troubles with China, uh, Japan has been quite supportive. You know, when China put, I guess, uh, we, do we call it an embargo on Taiwanese pineapples, Japanese public rushed out to buy them to support the country. And um, you're seeing now, especially as relations with uh, China fray, that there is more interest in having positive relations with Taiwan, which a lot of people in Japan see as an example of a vibrant Chinese democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe what China could look like um, and what Japan would like China to look like. Right. And Japan and Taiwan's relationship has been quite reciprocal over the past few years. You've already mentioned the pineapples, which are becoming a theme of this podcast. But, <laughs> you know, also after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake, Taiwan sent about $250 million in aid to Japan. Taiwan also gave 2 million masks to Japan early on in the pandemic. And Japan reciprocated over the last year or so with 4 million vaccine doses. So even if Japan doesn't officially recognize Taiwan as a country, it definitely seems to view it as a friendly neighbor. Yeah, that's right. So with that in mind then, what discussions are happening within Japan about whether it should take action or what its response should be if China did exercise its claim of sovereignty over Taiwan and launch some kind of invasion there? So I think it's important first to note that there's no evidence that China is going to invade Taiwan imminently. There's a lot of debate over whether China is interested in invading Taiwan at all, and if so, what the time frame for that would be. But I think even the people who think that it's a real possibility and it could happen relatively soon think that it would be five years um, from now at the earliest. China definitely wants to reunite with Taiwan, but you know there are lots of options for that that aren't, aren't military. I think some of the bigger concerns are about China putting other kinds of pressure, whether it's economic or diplomatic pressure on Taiwan that sort of forces it to pursue reunification with China. So uh, that's important to, to mention first. Mm -hmm. But in the event that something were to happen, yeah, it's a good question whether or not Japan would uh, be involved at all. And, and this, is really, this is really an interesting thing, actually, because the subject of a fight over Taiwan uh, was taboo in Japan until last year. And in April, uh, you had then-Prime Minister Suga, uh, on a trip to Washington, mention Taiwan in a joint statement with uh, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden. Mr. Suga called for peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, and it was kind of opened up the floodgates uh, in Japan for officials and politicians to start talking about this issue. So you've seen a lot of uh, highly positioned people, uh, whether it was Taro Aso or Shinzo Abe, talking about the threat of China to Taiwan and what that would mean for Japan. 
And basically, these people have been saying that if China were to ta- attack Taiwan, that would be an existential threat for Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important, actually, to just mention quickly that this comes in like a broader domestic political context. There's been a, a push for many years from the right in Japan to revise uh, the Japanese constitution to get rid of Article 9, uh, which prevents Japan from waging war. Um, and having what I think conservatives would call a, a quote-unquote normal military. In that context, I think it's useful for people on the right to play up the threat of China to Japan. So by positioning China as an existential threat, they hope to gain support for a revision to the pacifist parts of Japan's constitution. As things currently stand, what kind of action could Japan legally take if Taiwan were to be invaded? In most circumstances, Japan can only uh, use military force if there's a direct attack on on the country itself. And if Taiwan were to be attacked and the U.S. uh, were involved, it's not clear what Japan could do beyond providing maybe logistic support. Now, I I think the question is, um, if China were to attack Taiwan, would it also attack Japan? And a lot of pundits here say the answer is, is yes. So if China were to attack Taiwan, uh, there's a strong possibility that it would target U.S. bases uh, in Okinawa, for example, or other parts of the country. It seems that that would be a de facto attack on Japan. So under those circumstances, it's kind of hard to imagine a scenario where China attacked Taiwan and Japan was not somehow involved directly. That talk of U.S. bases on Okinawa moves us on to the third key diplomatic relationship in this discussion, and that's Japan's alliance with the US. How is that alliance informing the discussion about what Japan would do if there was a conflict around Taiwan? The US is Japan's most important ally. And most of Japan's planning for its own defense is dependent on the US. Because of the US bases in Japan, Japan also has to think about how the U.S.'s commitments to other nations will affect its own security. The U.S. has not made an explicit commitment to defending Taiwan. Uh, It has this policy called strategic ambiguity, where it basically doesn't say whether it would or wouldn't come to Taiwan's defense uh, if China were to attack it. On the other hand, uh, last year you had uh, President Biden say that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense. It was a statement that the White House subsequently walked back. But it seems quite likely, and I think most people that I've spoken to agree, that if China were to attack Taiwan, then the U.S. would respond. If that were to happen, inevitably, as we mentioned, Japan is going to be pulled in. So a lot of this discussion about uh, contingency in Taiwan, when Japan thinks about that, it really has to think first and foremost about how the U.S. is going to respond. Because if the U.S. does nothing, then it could still be a problem for Japan from a security standpoint, but legally it would be much more difficult for Japan to respond. Whereas if the U.S. is involved in this potential conflict, then it's very difficult for Japan not to become involved. So in that respect, uh, planning with the U.S. around the alliance is is critical uh, for Japan when thinking about this issue in Taiwan. I want to bring the discussion back to Ishigaki, where these missiles are actually being deployed. 
in this wonderful island of pineapples, nice beaches and incredibly blue water. Is there a worry there that if China were to invade Taiwan or that there was some kind of conflict in the region that Ishigaki, which is in such proximity to Taiwan and with its shiny new missile base, would be drawn into the fighting? A lot of people in the island are worried about exactly that. When I went there, I visited people who lived on the periphery of the construction site that's going to eventually uh, host these missiles. And they were, they were all quite concerned about what this meant for them. There are a lot of farmers who live around and, you know, they have the kind of like normal concerns that people have whenever there's a giant public works project being constructed near them, you know, mm. this sort of kind of like not in my backyard attitude, which is reasonable. They worry about how it's going to affect the quality of the water, for example, which, uh, you know, one farmer I spoke to who's growing mangoes, that was his biggest concern about the base itself. But, you know, again, five years ago, uh, if you went to Ishigaki, you'd see a lot of Chinese tourists there. There are cruise ships coming. You know, if you live in China and you wanted to go to a beautiful tropical island that was not in China itself, then uh, you, you hopped on a ship, you go to Ishigaki. So the relationship that Ishigaki had with China was, was quite positive. Uh, since the pandemic, there are no tourists. Uh, there's no money coming in from China. People are not seeing much economic benefit from China uh, today. But what they are seeing is a threat from these, the tensions between the U.S. and China. And I, I think it's not even so much that people are afraid of China per se. They're afraid of a conflict. The people in Ishigaki that I spoke to don't want any military presence there at all. They don't want the U.S. there. They don't want China there. They don't want Japan there, basically. They just want to be left alone. And they're afraid that they're going to be pulled into this conflict uh, between you know the world's three largest economies. Now, of course, the people who are in favor of the missile base, uh, the mayor of Ishigaki uh, is a huge proponent of it. He you know, strongly believes that the island needs those missiles to protect it and to protect the Senkakus. Uh, there are a lot of people there who are quite nationalistic and um, are strong proponents of uh, defending the Sen- Senkakus at any cost. Even before tensions with China increased, you saw a lot of conservative politicians going to Ishigaki because of its proximity to the Senkakus and using it as kind of um, a way to advertise their, their national security uh, bona fides. So people on the island are used to being at the center of this kind of dispute between Japan and China, but the tensions over Taiwan are a new element that have really, really uh, scared a lot of folks there. Mm, I think this is part of why I found your article so interesting, because if you do visit Ishigaki as a tourist, the last thing on your mind is regional tensions between superpowers. You know, mostly I worried about how my pale British skin would fare in the devastatingly hot sun or whether there was a typhoon coming or even, you know, just how quickly I could get into the sea to see some fish floating around coral reefs. But to kind of have that island paradise feel juxtaposed with these potentially disastrous regional tensions must be a real worry for some of the locals. So is there much in the way of a local opposition to these missile defences? Yeah, there's quite a lot of local opposition. Uh, we talked to a number of activists there, and they're there pretty much every day at the site. You have folks who are flying drones over it and taking photos and publishing newsletters and posters everywhere protesting the arrival of the self-defense forces. If you go to local council, the opposition parties there have all grouped together and 
mounted a, a protest against the base. And one of the big concerns is that there was no kind of public referendum about this. One of the farmers I spoke to told me, you know, he said, um, that they had a vote about where to put the town hall, but they didn't have a vote about, you know, whether or not they should have this base in the island. And I think even the people who are for the base, they still feel that there should have been a referendum. I mean, they just assume that they're going to win it, but they think, you know, that as someone told me that island issues should be decided by island people. I think that's a pretty common feeling there and throughout the Ryukyu Islands. Mm -hmm. So are we actually likely to see a scenario where these missiles are used or is it Japan preparing for a worst case scenario or even just political posturing? Never say never, but I think it's unlikely that there will be a scenario where it's actually used. I think the main intent is uh, deterrence. The Japanese government definitely doesn't want a conflict. I'm pretty sure China doesn't want a conflict. The U.S., I think at the end of the day, doesn't want a conflict. Barring some kind of miscalculation, I think it's very unlikely that there will be any kind of actual combat, you know, fighting in, in the area. I think if you look at the potential costs to China, taking Taiwan by force just doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't make much sense economically. It doesn't make much sense in terms of international politics. And even domestic from a domestic standpoint, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So and it's possible certainly to imagine scenarios where conflict breaks out. Uh, you know, again, a miscalculation is, is a serious concern. Mm. Uh, you see, have seen recently a lot of saber rattling in the region, a lot of uh, ships and planes flying around. And, you know, whenever that happens, there's always the possibility that something could go dramatically wrong, um, which is, I think, why a lot of people in, you know, Ishigaki are, are concerned because, you know, they're worried that having the missiles there makes it much more likely, even if the likelihood is small, makes it much more likely that if something were to happen, that they would be directly impacted. Ben Dooley, thank you very much. Thank you. This week, as the Omicron variant has continued to spread around the country, Japan has set new records for coronavirus case counts, with over 30,000 cases reported on Tuesday. With case counts continuing to rise, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said on Tuesday night that the government plans to issue new quasi-emergency measures in 13 prefectures. Also, in the early hours of Sunday morning, tsunami advisories were issued across large portions of Japan's Pacific coastline following the eruption of an underwater volcano located near Tonga, about 8,000 kilometers from Japan. Minor damages were reported in several of Japan's coastal areas. My guest today was the New York Times' Ben Dooley. I'll put a link to his article in the show notes, and my thanks to him again for joining me this week. If you're going to Ishigaki and want some recommendations on where to go, shoot me a message through my Twitter or Instagram. It's one of my favourite places in Japan, and quite frankly, the idea of it at war is appalling. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you could write the show a review or give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'll be back next week, and until then, as always, Podskata Samarik.